touch somebody else, everybody. Those of you who don't yet speak Hebrew, that's happy holidays. <laughs> because today is a holiday. It's the Feast of Weeks. Oh, thank you. Last week we looked at Psalm 1 and we noted that it was the opening psalm of the book that was deliberately placed there to make sure that we as individuals understand what God requires from us. Blessed is the man who. Psalm 2 continues that same theme, but not on an individual basis, but on a national basis. Blessed is the nation that. The opening line in Psalm 1, how blessed is, is the closing line in Psalm 2, how blessed are all. And it goes from the singular to the plural. And we know the last time that it, it was the word happiness in the name. A Christian translation is often is uh, blessed, but in the, the Jewish translation it's usually happy, uh, ashray. So let me read it. Why are the nations in uproar and the peoples divine or devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me... I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the degree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The author of Psalm 1 and 2, according to Jewish tradition, is King David. And here when we read this psalm, we don't know who wrote it. Yet in the book of Acts, in chapter 4, verses 24 and 26, it's attributed to David. And since that is an inspired text, I believe that to be true. There is no subtitle, little subscription or buffet, and so we don't quite know what it could be called, but how blessed is the nation would be an option, or resistance is futile against the Lord and his anointed, to which everything must bow. 
This psalm is considered a messianic psalm, and all ancient Jewish sources state so. It's only from the time of the year 1100 that Jewish tradition said it's not about the Messiah, it's not about the anointed one. And they changed the word the anointed one to mean the king or a priest or a leader or anybody else but the Messiah, the Christ. And it is true that the word anointed can mean that. Priests were anointed, kings were anointed, prophets were anointed. That's not the issue. But this anointed one is the Son of God, and therefore he is not a anointed one, one who is set apart by God, but he is the anointed one. It is quoted in the New Testament on a variety uh, of texts. It is half of the psalm is quoted somewhere within the New Testament. In the book of Acts, in the book of Revelation, particularly it is quoted. But also in the book of Hebrews and the Gospel of John. As we read through this psalm, we noted, perhaps you didn't, but I noted four scenes and four voices that carried out. Uh, some on earth and some in heaven. Verses 1 to 3, I saw David speaking on earth. And then I see God's response in verses 4 to 6. And then the promise of the Lord to the king who will reign on earth in verses 7 to 9. And then finally, God's advice in verses 10 to 12 regarding submission to his son. It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, exhorting the Gentiles. Why are the nations, some versions say the heathens. The word is goyim in Hebrew. It can mean the nations, and that's probably the best translation, though often in opposition to God or his Messiah, and that's exactly the, the passage here. And so translating it as heathen is not a bad thing because they are in opposition to God. And he's exhorting them. To some degree, I think David is saying, why are they so foolish Don't they know that the king was king over all the earth for all time and that he will come and reign, not just through me or through the kings that will follow from me, but he will come and reign as king. There are 27 psalms that deal with the kingship of the Lord. And so it is not a new thing that he was declaring. God was always king. He was enthroned above the flood or during the flood. As if it only happened then, but God was already king from eternity past. Liberal scholarship tries to see this psalm, written by David, not a written by, but attributed 
to him and to his kingship. But when we read through the Davidic covenant in the book of Samuel or in Second uh, Chronicles, Second Samuel 17 or First Chronicles 17, uh, we don't see that. We, we don't see that David is appointed to be king over all the earth and that he will reign over the foreign nations. That is separate from him. That is not a promise to him. Therefore, this is not about David, and therefore his son, Solomon, is not the son of God. Though liberal scholarship tries to do that. These nations that have come up are quoted in Peter's sermon in Acts 4, verses 25 to 28. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And so clearly he's quoting this. For truly they have gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. I don't think Peter is saying this is a fulfillment of that. But he's pointing out the similarities of the event. God promised that the kings of the earth would stand against the Lord and his anointed. And that's what we see at the crucifixion that we mentioned earlier. And so that fits together, but it's not yet a fulfillment. Because what is the ultimate fulfillment? That he will reign upon the earth. And that is what we have yet to see. And the people devise a faint thing. They are, like in Psalm 1, murmuring against the Lord. They are mumbling to themselves, but not godly things as in Psalm 1, what they should do, meditating on the law. Now they are meditating on what they want. I'll do it my way, as Frank Sinatra did. That is what they are trying to do here. The nations clearly don't want God to come. And in that light, what Peter says is very significant because here we have the nations, the heathens, but Israel, according to Peter, is amongst them. And how true that is. In many ways, Israel is a distinct nation, but in many ways, it is exactly the same. And so this is what should happen. The kings and the rulers should take counsel together to stand with the Lord. But sadly, what is it that they do? Stand against the Lord and his anointed. Not many people were called his anointed, but this is clearly talking about not Cyrus, but about the Messiah who was to come. We see what they want to do, and we see God's response in verses uh, 4 onwards. He who dwells in the heavens laughs, or he who sits in the heaven laughs. There's not many phrases like that where we see God laughing. Really, I tend to think that it's more God is smirking. He's not having a good old laugh and slapping his knee going, ha, 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 that is funny. 
but he is going, what are you doing? Because there is a progression here that I want you to pick up, and I'm sure you already picked that up. God is sitting in the heavens and he is smirking because these people are not responding to him in a proper way. Then he scoffs at them. Then he speaks to them in his anger. And then he terrifies them. Do you see the progression that is happening? It goes from, <laughs> what do you think you're doing? I am the, as we sang in the Psalms, the high king of heaven. I am the king of kings. That's really what that phrase is indicating. I am not just a lonely little ruler over a little city-state or a little kingdom. I am the king of kings. I am the lord of lords. I am the king of heaven sitting here. What do you think you're doing? Wake up. I've already told you in Psalm 1 how to walk with me. But now on a national basis, he is smirking. He's laughing at them. He then scoffs at them. And so it becomes worse. It is as if he now becomes aroused and saying, I am getting angry because you've refused to submit to the authority of my word, that which I have revealed, refused to authority of me and my son, whom I've appointed heir of all things. He then will speak to them in his anger. And terrifies them in his fury. The word here is he will shake them in his fury. God will shake the heavens and the earth in the last days. And that's what we see here. He is to that point he is angry. It's not something that quickly happens. uh, But it is trying to tell us that God is an emotional being. And one day he will say, it is enough. If you and I had been God, we would have done that two days after Noah got drunk, probably. But God is gracious. He is merciful, patient. And because of that, he will wait. But the day will come when that is no longer the case. But as for me... In the past tense, he declares, I've installed my king upon my... Sorry, let me start again. But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. David was anointed three times uh, as king uh, in Bethlehem in 1 Samuel 16, in 2 Samuel 2 in Hebron for the first time over Judah. And then the final time over all Israel, 2 Samuel 5, again in Hebron. His son, Solomon, was anointed in Jerusalem near the Gihon Spring. And many of them were anointed there. But none of them were anointed here, upon Zion, my holy mountain. He's referring to Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, something that David had purchased at the end, and this is where only one king will be anointed. No king in the Old Testament was anointed there. 
because this king is distinct from all the other kings. Zion here doesn't mean the Jebusite city as it often does, the fortress, because it is clarified here. It is my holy mountain or my holy hill, and that's Mount Moriah. He is crowned king or enthroned in Jerusalem, the city of peace, because he will be the ruler in peace or the ruler of peace. And that, again, connects with one of those aspects of his coming kingship. Verses 7 to 9 continues the promise of the Lord to his son, to the Messiah. I will surely tell you of the degree. In other words, I have made an oath. I have made an agreement And you will hear, you will listen to this. God has given a directive to us to obey and to listen. David's reference to the Lord's degree regarding his son goes back to that Davidic covenant that one of his sons would reign, 2 Samuel 7, 5 and verse 14. And he describes his relationship with that son, the Davidic son. It is his son. It is God's own son. We see that same kind of referencing in Proverbs chapter 30, where God is having a son. It is he who will reign. Only God's son will reign over all the earth. David was indeed the legitimate son, and his sons would reign over Israel alone, but not more than that. Here we see that it goes beyond. Today I have begotten you. Today? Hasn't that already happened? It is only his physical birth that is referenced here, nothing more than that. Today, God's son has come, and he comes to be crowned king, and he will be given all of the nations as his inheritance. All he needs to do is ask. He doesn't have to demand. He doesn't have to stomp his feet. He doesn't have to conquer them. All he needs to do is ask, and his father will give it to him as his inheritance. God is enthroned above all things, yet his son will reign on earth. Some try to spiritualize this away and say, Jesus reigns in my heart. May he do so, and may you be obedient. But that's not what this is about. They will acknowledge in many churches that Jesus was the prophet who was to come. They will acknowledge from the book of Hebrews that he is our high priest, yet that last office which he has promised is denied him because they don't want a physical kingdom. When we all go to heaven, what a glorious day that will be. But we're not destined for heaven, though it may be a great hymn. 
we are called earthlings. We are Adam, Adam, from Adama, from the earth. And so he will reign upon the earth over us. His kingship is as important as his prophetic office was, as his priestly offices, because all three declare that he is the one and only Messiah. And so he will be the universal king who will come and reign over all the earth, even to the very ends of the earth, not just one nation. And God will deal with those rebellious nations at that point. He will break them with a rod of iron. This is quoted later on within the book of Revelation. God will reign with an iron fist. That is uncomfortable language for many of us because we see Jesus meek and mild who will save this little child. We have images of Jesus where he is the lion, sorry, the lamb and the, the gentle savior and our friend, but he will also reign as king, not tolerating dissent. He will rule, he will break all of them to pieces if they don't listen. The rod that he describes here is the same word for shepherd's staff but it is the staff that will bring correction. We then change views again, and we are back in heaven, and God is looking down and saying, hey, submit to the Son. Now, therefore, O kings, plural, again, it's for all of them, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth. It's not just the supreme leader, the king or the president. It is for all who are underneath him, judges of the earth. Worship the Lord in purity, in reference. It's something that we should do today. We should now already stand aside and allow purity to come out. Rejoice with trembling. In some translations, particularly the Jewish translations, it says, do homage in purity, that he may not become angry. That makes sense to me because, indeed, the, the word here that is used is distinct from the word son. Uh, normally, the word son in Hebrew is the word ben. And that most of us are familiar with names like that. But here the word is not in Hebrew, it is bar. It's the Aramaic word. And it is a bit of an unusual thing to use that word because why would you not use the Hebrew? But this psalm is primarily addressed to the Gentiles, to the heathens, to the nations. And therefore he's using a word that they are familiar with. We see the same thing in Proverbs chapter 30. The words of Akur, the son of Yaka, an oracle. And that's what we saw here in Psalm 2. This is a declaration from God, an oracle. The man declared to Ithiel and to Ithiel and Ukal, 
Surely I am more stupid than any man. We don't quite know who this is, whether Solomon is writing in a sense about himself, Akur, or whether this is one of the other wise men, and that's most likely from Taman, one of the ones who was extremely wise. And so he's not saying he's actually stupid, he's just saying about the subject I'm about to speak, I know I cannot even try to understand. Surely I'm more stupid than any man, and I do not have understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have knowledge of the Holy One. And now he comes up with some questions. Who has ascended into the heavens and descended? And if I would ask you that question, what would your answer be? Who's ascended and descended? Must be a very silent congregation. Let me wake you up. Anybody? Sorry? Okay. So if I was a saint living in the Old Testament times, who would this be? Who is he talking about here? Who's ascended and descended if I would live at the time of Solomon? Now, that's not true. Remember Jacob had a dream? And who ascended and descended? The angels. Okay, so that would be one option. In the book of Job, who went up to God and complained about Job? Satan. And then God himself in the Garden of Eden, because God lives in the heavens, but he came down at the cool of the day. So I have one of three options, really, no more than that. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Is that the angels? No. Is that Satan? No. Who does that leave? Okay, that's God. Okay. Who's wrapped the waters in his garment? Satan? No. The angels? No. Oh, it's still God. Who's established the ends of the earth? Satan? No. Angels? No. God. Okay, so really the answer from the first should have been God, God, God. And what is his name? What is his name? Well, the Old Testament name for God is Yahweh. It does, but that would be a different sermon for a different day. And what is the name of his son? And that's the same word. That's the word bar again. Because he's saying this talking to the Gentiles, saying, hey, God has a son. Surely you know. He's teasing them because they wouldn't have known. And it's that same word that we see here. Do homage in purity, or as most translations have it correctly, kiss the son. It's an act of submission, an act of homage. We see that in 1 Kings 19, verse 20, Hosea 13, 2, where the people who had been conquered or people who had become into submission would kiss the king. They would anoint him. We see that, sorry, who would grace him with a, um, a referential kiss. We see that same thing with Judas, who was supposed to do this in homage, yet he chooses to do it in defilement. 
kiss the son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. Who is becoming angry now? The son. You see, suddenly we go from the meek and men, meek and mild Jesus to the roaring lion who will come and he will tear us apart. Yes, he will heal us from Hosea, but it is he who will come. For his wrath may soon be kindled. When we read through Revelation, it is only a seven-year period from chapter 4 onwards. If he kept it longer than that, none of us would have survived. But his wrath really is at the end of the last three and a half years. And it will be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that's what we're counseled to do. We are counseled to come together and be found in him, to trust in him, like Ruth did, like many of us have. That's what we are counseled to do. As nations, we are counseled to do this, because this psalm is about the nations. It's one reason why we pray for government, that God will hear our prayer, that our government will be in submission to God, so that when God establishes his kingdom, we will be a sheep and not a goat nation. Psalm 118 would be more a reflection for Israel because they reject the stone. And so Israel too fits within these nations that have rejected God. And because we rejected God collectively, according to Psalm 22, he will suffer and die for us so that we together can come back to him, so that we together can praise him. Not because of what we, but because of what he has done. Therefore, we need to take refuge in him. And then understanding that will make us happy. We will be blessed by that. This psalm tells us that God has a son. And that he will come and he will reign. He will be crowned king. Not just over Israel, but over all the earth. And that he will rule Overall, as such, is he Lord? Yes. Is he king in our hearts? I hope so. Will he be king over all the earth one day? The answer is yes. And so for us today, we need to pray for our surrender to him as individuals, but also as nations, that we may follow him. Jesus asked us to pray for the kingdom that is to come, a kingdom in which he will reign. And so I ask, do we do that? Do we look forwards to his kingdom and what he will do in our lives?